funny because we joke about the Harrisburg Miracle where it's like at 11 o'clock or 9 o'clock. Only a quarter of the church is here. And then you open your eyes like, oh, there you are. So when I sat down, I was just like, where is everyone this morning on this beautiful day? But ah, there you are. Um, this morning I'm going to be talking about, we're going back to the book of Acts. Um, one of the things I thought about this week in preparing for this message was how as a kid, um, it wasn't just homework that I would rush through, it was also chores. In fact, homework I was mostly good with, you know, like I was, like even in high school, it took me about an hour to get home. So like I got all my homework done before I got home and it was great, right? Um, it made it hard when you had to study because on the subway in Philadelphia, people aren't very quiet, you know? Um, but like the thing that really annoyed me was chores. Like every Saturday growing up, I played sports all year round, right? And my aunt would wake us up and like at 6 a.m. if you had to, to get the whole house clean before you have to be at your game at 7.30, right? Um, and it seemed impossible. So I got really good at like, think, at least oh, I'll say that again. She might be watching. I thought I got really good at like cutting corners, you know, but she sees everything like every good mother would, right? Um, and so when I thought about the book of Acts and coming back to Acts, is like, it felt like I kind of rushed ahead, you know? I was going to skip pretty much like, I read through the whole book and I was just like, all right, we're good, we have these summaries. But I had this large chunk in Acts 21 to 28 that I was just like, ah, you know, it's Paul's journey, Jerusalem, not a big deal. But as I thought more and more about it, and I thought about, you know, why is it important for us to not just do the whole book or cover the whole book, is if we truly want to say what we learned from the church then and now, we can't skip seven chapters, right? Like, I know you're like, oh, that's obvious. It wasn't obvious to me. But that's why we're going back to Acts for a couple of weeks. And what I've been thinking about this morning as we look at Acts 21 in this passage is this idea of perseverance. What does it mean to persevere? Now, for us, especially in light of this pandemic, we've probably been thinking about that a little bit more. But the perseverance, I think, that, that really jumps out at us in this passage isn't just the one that comes in pandemics. But I think it's the perseverance that comes actually after the persecution. Because if you've been tracking through Acts, there's been a lot of persecution, and usually persecution what? There's a church that comes up and people rise up in the faith. So the perseverance this morning is a little bit different than like you're under attack from the enemy or you're in a foxhole together. I know we're Anabaptists and we're pacifists, but if you're in a foxhole together and someone's coming and attacking you, it's easy to persevere because you have to persevere to survive. But the perseverance, I think, that comes through in this passage and through Acts 21 to 28 is, how do we persevere when things are easy? How do we persevere when the enemy isn't attacking me like blatantly in front of me? How do we persevere when things look good on the outside? How do we persevere when God asks us to do something really, really hard? How do we persevere in a way that gives glory to God? How do we persevere? So in all my wisdom, I was like, well, we say that word so much in the sermon, like, we should probably look up what it means, right? It's one of those words that we think we know what it means, but this is what I came up with, right? It says, perseverance is to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty, or with little or no prospect for success. When I read that, I was just like, oh, that's what it means to be a Mets fan, you know? It's just like, you start every spring, and you have all this hope. And as a kid, I used to think I hated September because it was back to school, but I actually liked school. And what I realized this week is I hate September's because that usually means the end of the Mets season, right? Whereas like your depression sets in, it's like, oh, we're bad again. But then it also means the start of the Giants season, which is like your depression is going to start again because your team's terrible, right? Like that's what perseverance initially meant to me. But it's not just, you know, about sports teams. It's not just about going back to school. What does it mean to continue on the course of action, even in the face of difficulty or with little prospect of success? Because this call to persevere isn't just something that's personal. 
It's not just, oh, things are hard, you need to persevere. Or, oh, things are beyond your imagination, you need to persevere. Or, oh, you feel overwhelmed, you need to persevere. But the call of perseverance is really the call that universally goes out to the church. We are to continue on in the faith despite the trials that we face. Dr. Todd Williams, who's the president out of Cairn University outside of Philadelphia, says it like this. Life in this world is not easy. We were never promised that it would be. You have to stop there for a second, right? Because sometimes when we say the world is hard, we forget that other part, that it's never promised to be easy. Jesus himself says what? In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Life in this world is not easy. We were never promised it would be. Only that we would never be alone. We have one another. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a Lord and Savior who said he would never leave us or forsake us. That sustained and guided the early church. So too it can us. We persevere because the devil tells us we are alone. We persevere because our situations tell us we're unvalued, unloved, and no one really cares. We persevere because things might be overwhelming and beyond our belief. We persevere because that's what God calls us to do. On your sheets, we have the, the passage I'll be preaching from this morning. It's Acts 21. I think we stopped you at 15, but I'm going to go down to 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and follow me for those two verses, or just trust me, it's in there. Starting in verse 1. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there Padera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. On, we sought out the disciples who were there and stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit they urged Pearl not to go to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed there with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand them over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people were there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm, not ready, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. And then verses 15 and 17. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasin, or in certain translation, it might say Jason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you so much that in this call to persevere that we are not alone. That even when the world seems overwhelming, we need to take heart. For you not only believe in us, but you have overcome the world. And Lord, we thank you that the same power that raised you from the dead is the power that lives inside of us. So help us to know we are not unloved, we are not alone, we are not by ourselves, because the Spirit lives inside of us. And you've gifted us, brothers and sisters, the church, not only in history past, but all over the world, and yes, even in our houses, and our homes, all around us, to tell us that we are not alone. So we thank you for the church that is around us, the church that is in us, the church that is all over this world. And God, we thank you so much 
that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only knows what we go through, who not only answers every question we may have, but promises to never leave us nor forsake us. So Lord, help us to persevere, not only like Paul, but like Jesus our Christ. In your holy and precious name, amen. So what's interesting in this passage is that as we're reading through um, 21 to 27, you really have Paul's farewell tour. I have a friend um, named Joey Mellon who I grew up with, and his dad grew up in Philadelphia um, in the 60s and 70s, which if you're a classic rock fan, that's like the time to be alive, right? And Philadelphia is not as big as New York, so you would get all the big performers and shows, right? And, and, but you would get them in more smaller, intimate settings. And I remember for maybe 13 years of life, this guy never told us any of this. And then we stumbled into this room in the basement, and I was just like, oh my goodness gracious, right? You name a band that was around the 60s and 70s, he had tickets or, or records and all this stuff. And we started, we looked over, we looked at him, and was just like, Mr. Mellon, you've been holding out. And what was fascinating in thinking about, you know, Mr. Mellon holding out is that this idea that not only had this guy seen all these things, right? But then he started telling us about farewell tours. And farewell tours were usually like, it wasn't just sad the band is, er, is leaving, but it was this idea that like, it's the final goodbye. And in the part of this final goodbye, you know, it was just like, you would go and you would celebrate, you would go home. And it was a farewell tour, it was a celebration. But what's interesting about Paul's farewell tour as he marches on to Jerusalem, is it wasn't just a celebration. It's actually encompassed by a lot of tearful goodbyes. Pastor Linda preaching last week told us about when he landed in Ephesus. And one of the things that's interesting about Paul here is that as he's marching towards Jerusalem, it's filled with tearful goodbyes. But it's filled with tearful goodbyes because a lot of this tour happens after the initial persecution. And he's going to these churches that either he started or he's encouraging. And I think Pastor Linda also reminded us last week that when he's going on this tour, it's not just to say goodbye, but it's because people were in need. So part of what he's doing, even though he's marching on to his death, is he's looking around at the church and saying, you who have are meant to give to those who do not have. Yes, I'm going goodbye, but you have to persevere on. I may not be around, but the work goes on. So as he's going through this, uh, this, this, this tour, it's not just, oh, it's goodbye and I'm going to miss you, is the work has to go on. I may not be around, but you will be, and you have to continue the work. And, and, and in each of these scenes, you have not only tearful goodbyes, but a commitment to prayer. In certain places like Ephesus, the, like Paul will actually encourage the church by praying for them. In our passage, when he gets to Tyre, you have um, families, not just the church leaders or, or the leaders of the church, but women, children, families, everyone going out to the sea to say goodbye and then getting on their knees and praying for him. How do we persevere? I think that gives us a little bit of an inkling of how we are to persevere as a church. What's also interesting about this farewell tour, and it shows you that Paul is going more than to Jerusalem, is that where he starts off the tour is in Antioch, and Jerusalem is just south. Yet this man goes all the way over to the west, down, and back, and then he goes down. In fact, it takes over 2,700 miles for him to get from Antioch to Jerusalem because he does this roundabout tour because he needs to go to these churches to tell them if you have, your job is to give to those who don't have. I'm leaving, but you're here. There's work to do. And as he's going on this roundabout tour, right, it's not just a kumbaya tour, right? So it's not just, hey, I'm going to work, let's continue, like, let's go on. But you have to remember all the things he goes through on this 2,700-mile trip. It takes three years. It takes a bunch of different leaders, right? And even when he lands in Jerusalem at the end of our story, that's not where his story ends. And we'll find out more about that next week. But as he's going through this not-so-kumbaya tour, let me give you some of the greatest hits that Paul goes through. Riots in Antioch and Thessalonica. 
Stoning in Lystra where they tried to kill him. Beatings in Philippi. Berea where we say, oh, they had more noble character. They drove him out of that city. Court and violence in Corinth. In Ephesus, when he gets back, before he has that tearful goodbye we talked about last week, they actually filled up the amphitheater, which we think had about 25,000 people, and they were all riled up against them until someone asked, it's like, but why are we mad at him? Then they're like, we don't know. We don't know why we're mad at this Paul, but we want to kill him, right? And that passage is weird because then a, a politician stands up and actually does good. I know you got to use your imagination. Politicians doing good, right? Use your imagination on this. But this politician, like the bishop, stands up and gives this speech, and they're like, I guess we'll go home now, right? And, and this is all that he's going through. So the tour is not just a farewell. It's with a message. The tour is not just, hey, I'm, I'm going goodbye, but it's you're here to stay and you got work to do. And the tour isn't just like kumbaya. It's he actually has his life or death every step of the journey. But the thing that's interesting is that he's focused on Jerusalem. And that's interesting because Luke writes the Gospel of Luke. And Luke also writes Acts. In fact, in the early church, they combined Luke and Acts as one book. And so when you, it's very easy because we have the same common author, we have Paul who says, for me to live as Christ and die is gain. Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul had Christ as his ultimate example. I have friends who are come from a different tradition and, and more reformed in their thinking. And I tell them, it's like, you're really good at following Paul, but Paul followed Jesus. You need to work on that. That's just for my reformed folks who are watching. Thank you. But the thing about Paul following Jesus is Paul lived to look just like Jesus. And I think that's work we all have to do always, right? And so Paul, in looking like Jesus... And Luke, in writing both the books, sees the parallels. And he says, man, just like Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, so is Paul setting his face to Jerusalem. Just like Jesus goes in and he's handed over to the Gentiles, Paul's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Just like when Jesus tells his friends, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. There's weeping and there's anguish and there's a deep sense of loss. Paul is going to do the same. Just like Jesus was willing to say, God, are you sure? But not my will be done. Paul had to get to a point where he says, God, are you sure? But your will be done as well. Now, this is a parallel that people have picked up since the early church origin. And in the last couple of weeks, a bunch of writers, when they put it, it's easy to see these parallels. But it's a difference that we miss with Luke. He's not just foreshadowing. He's not just writing a picture of how they're the same. Luke wants us to know that when Jesus dies, that's the turning point of history. But when Paul goes... Paul is going for what Jesus did. You see, the distinction there, the difference there, the significance there is when Jesus died, the whole world changes. When Paul dies, the church realizes that Jesus is still alive. That Paul isn't the Messiah. That Paul is just a messenger of the gospel. And that we are to persevere. So as Jesus' death gives us birth, Paul's life gives the church life. And that's the difference between Paul's passion and Jesus' passion. In our passage here in Acts 21, you kind of see Paul heading to Jerusalem, and it's kind of like he's on his own personal odyssey. If you remember ninth grade English, for some of us with Mrs. Bivens, you read the Odyssey, right? That's the long book that you didn't really understand, so you try to get the cliff notes to try to help you understand it. At least that was me, right? But in that book, you have Odysseus going off to fight in the Trojan War for 10 years. And then he does the Paul, right? Where it takes him 10 more years to actually get home. In that 20 years time, his wife Penelope and Telemachus are, are fighting off all these suitors who are trying to marry and take over everything that he has. But along the journey, it's kind of like Paul. He has all these calamities and all this crazy stuff that's happening. But what's interesting is even in this chapter, it doesn't just, it's not just in three years, but look at all the different places that Paul goes to. 
He stops at Kos. He goes to Rhodes. He, he, he goes through Patera. He stops at Phoenicia. They see Cyprus, which means they were close enough to see the land of Cyprus. They go to Syria. They stop in Tyre. Then they get to Jerusalem. Paul is on a journey. And I love that every step along the way, he's looking to encourage the believers. Every step along the way, he's focused on the gospel going out. But I also love that Paul's not alone. I said it earlier when I was entering kind of where we're going today is that one of the greatest lies I think the devil lives to tell us is that we are alone. Is that we are, are in a situation that, that, that no one knows how we feel. No one knows what we're going through. Or sometimes it's no, no, no God can answer this question that I'm battling with. And I, I always like to remind us that like there's no question you're going to ask God that God's going to be like, wow, this is just brilliant. You stumped me. But there's also nothing that you go through that God promises not to be with you in. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it's not just a promise, it's a forever promise. And that's why he's left the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And that's why he's left your sisters and brothers all around you. And that's why he's given you not just the scriptures, but a history of people persevering. And when Paul's going on this odyssey, Paul's going on this journey, you see Luke saying time and time again about how they're not alone. They're not alone when they're traveling. In this passage, Luke doesn't say, say Paul goes. He says, we. So it's not just Luke and, 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 and Paul, but there's a whole group that's with them. Some, some commenter says up to nine people who are with them throughout the journey. And at time and time again, it's, it's in and out. So you see Luke, and then when they get to Tyre, they, they go and they seek out Christians there. Ptolemies, they seek out Christians there. Jerusalem, they go and meet with Philip, who we met weeks ago, and his four daughters. When they get to Caesarea, they meet Agabus, right? When they go to Jerusalem, they meet Manasseh. They're going through all these places, and they're never alone. And I love that, because even Paul, knowing that my end is near, is never alone. And it's a reminder to us that though we may feel alone, may we have not only the spirit inside of us, but the eyes to see and the people around us to encourage, to build us up, to spur us on to the work that God's called us to do. And I love that in this passage you see Paul's prayer. In Ephesus, he prayed for them. In Tyre, the families and the church, they gather around. And I love this because when he shows up, they're not even sure what Christians are in the city. I travel a little bit, especially pre-pandemic. And when I get into new cities, my first thought is, who are the Christians here that I need to hang out with, right? That's never my thought. But I love that Paul, throughout this journey, that's what his thought is. And it's amazing that these Christians who maybe heard of him, not only take him in for seven days, but they form such an intense emotional bond that when it's time for him to go, they go to the beach, they get on their knees, and they pray for him. And then you have this guy, Agabus, who comes down from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and he's this great prophet. And it's interesting because Luke is kind of moving us through the long that, like, it's not just we have great church leaders. It's not even like the Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. Really, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And as you go through the chapter, you see time and time again, the Spirit is saying, Philip has daughters that prophesy, and, and, and Agabus is the prophet. And you have all these different prophets that are showing up. And Luke is trying to say that God works through us all. God works not just through Paul, but God is in us all. But when this prophet shows up, he has this great revelation. I remember when I was in Costa Rica years ago, our first mission trip, um, the pastor of this town in Cerritos that we were at, you know, he comes up to me and our kids who are, I don't know, your kids kind of take on your personality, right? I didn't realize how much of my personality they take on. The pastor came up and he was just like, you know, Pastor Hank, one day you were preaching in front of 100 people. And one of my kids looks me dead in the eye because the guy doesn't say English that well. And he's like, 
does he already know you preach at our church? And I was like, shh, this is a prophecy. You know, like this is a prophecy, we need to go with this. And I think that's how we need to look at Agabus. Because Agabus comes and he comes with this word and it's very interesting. It's, that's what the Spirit put on his heart. And I'm not demeaning what the Spirit put on his heart, but I'm saying that Paul already knew. And so a lot of times when people read this passage, they're like, well, does the Spirit contradict? No. The Spirit reveals. And that's why we need community, and that's why we need one another, because what the Spirit tells you might be different from what the Spirit tells you. And us together seeking the Spirit and praying together might reveal the Spirit's will more than me alone. So the Spirit comes to Agabus and says, Paul, I'm going to grab you by your belt, and that's how they're going to take you, and you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to die there. And Paul says, I don't want you to weep. I don't want you to break my heart. I know what's happening. And they try to dissuade him time and time again. But eventually they land in a place where they says, if Paul says God's will be done, we must too. So after Paul makes his, his heartbroken plea that the Lord's will be done, they finally accept it. And I love that after they accept it, there is peace. So what does all this that's happening in this passage teach us about perseverance? I think the first thing it teaches us is that, yes, we may not be under attack, right? No matter what our TV news people say, like, Christianity is not under attack. Christianity is actually failing because we're not looking like Jesus. No one's attacking us as much as we're not looking like our Christ. So what, how they persevere here, I think there's four things that we pull from this passage that helps. The first one is time and time again in this passage, you'll see the church perseveres, by being hospitable. In Matthew 25, Jesus has this great passage where he talks about the end of times where they'll separate the sheep and the goats, right? And in that passage, he talks about, you know, if you feed people who are hungry, if you give water to those who are thirsty, if you clothe those who are naked, if you visit the people in prison, you do it to me. And we love that passage because it's like, yeah, Jesus calls us to love the least of these. But the second layer of that passage is to realize that Jesus isn't just calling us to, to, to love the least of these, but in the very next chapters of Matthew, Jesus becomes the least of these. Because on Calvary's tree, right? Jesus is hungry. Jesus is thirsty. Jesus is naked. Jesus is broken. Jesus is a prisoner. He's driven out of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus dies. So when we think about how does it mean to love the least of these, it's not just those people society leaves behind, it's how do we love everyone because Jesus loves everyone. And the answer seems to be being hospitable. And I think it's interesting that Paul and his crew showed up in Tyre and for seven days they're able to stay with Christians. Imagine if any of us, right, go to a city we don't know and walk into a house and says, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'll be staying for seven days. Probably won't work as easily for us, right? But that's what they do because the Christians back then understood that the way we persevere is by being hospitable to one another. Seven days entire with Christians they didn't know. One day in Ptolemais. A number of days with Philip and his four daughters. Before they get to Jerusalem, they go to Manasseh, who we think was a, a, Cypris, a Cyprian um, Hellenistic early Christian who had a house big enough to house all of them. And I think it's very, very interesting because a lot of commenters point out that the world back then, hospitality wasn't just, yeah, it was your commitment to Christ and what you're called to do, but it was a necessary thing. It was necessary because if you went to the lodging of the day, there's a good chance it was dilapidated. There was a better chance it was unclean. There was a good chance that whatever furnishings that was there was what you brought in. So if you're traveling with nothing, you get nothing. There was a good chance that, the, the, that there was bed bugs and the food wasn't good and you couldn't count on drink. There was a good chance that the staff was trying to steal money from you. The clientele was shady. And then some of these places at night would even double the business by becoming a brothel. 
So when you think about these Christians or Paul on his journey, the reason they needed hospitality wasn't just because the Christians are committed to God, because it was a necessity. And I thought about the same thing for us. Because we may not be seeking hospitality because of shady people around us or clientele or not trusting food or drink. But in this pandemic, aren't we more lonely than ever? Aren't we more struggling than ever? Aren't we more tired than ever? The numbers say we're more depressed than ever, which is impressive because we were already very depressed before. Aren't we more alone than ever? If we want to persevere in this pandemic, and I get it, a lot of us are out here sitting with masks. A lot of us are out here trying to stay as protective as we can be. But the work becomes for all of us, if we're going to persevere in this thing, we must do the work of being hospitable to one another. And that might mean going to lunch without any agendas, just to say, how are you doing? And that might mean opening up your house to break bread with one another, because that's actually been one of the, 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 the secrets to Christianity, is eating food together. That might be checking on people, not for any agenda, but just to see how they're doing. That might mean stopping and saying, who in my life feels alone that I can reach out to? Because how we're going to persevere, not just in this pandemic, but in this bigger, better, faster America, in this let's do everything for the outside, how we're going to persevere is, are we willing to be hospitable to one another? Are we willing to be homes to one another? And home isn't just saying, I accept you, welcome in. Home is saying, you belong, yes. But this is the place you can come and get rest. This is the place you can come and feel loved. This is a place that God is calling you to. Isaiah said it like this. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor to wander a shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to turn away flesh from your own blood. Peter said it this way. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Rosario Broderfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in this book, she says it like this. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors the family of God. If we want to persevere, it's not just we need to bring people to church, it's we need to open up our homes, that we need to break bread. We need to be hospitable for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers. We need to not just be safe places, but we need to be a place where they know they are loved. That's how this early church persevered. Paul could walk into these cities and say, because we belong to Christ, I can be home with you. So the challenge to us becomes, because we belong to Christ, how can the people in our world know that they belong to us? If we want to persevere, we have to. We have to be hospitable. The second thing is we have to do a lot better and encouraging one another. Paul doesn't go on the trip alone, he has companions. Paul, as he's going through all these places, have people who are wrapping around him, who are praying for him. They have people who, who are not only praying for him, but when he tells their story, it moves them to the point of tears, and they're making these strong connections. And I love that, because it shows that if we are to encourage, it's not just a nice email say, hey, how are you doing? But it's living in a way that what you go through affects me. A lot of us get the first layer of saying, God, I want the things that break your heart to break my heart. And that's great. But we also have to extend that thing to each other as well. Because if we're truly the body of Christ, 
If we're truly members of one another, when you hurt, I need to hurt too. When you suffer, I need to not say, oh, I know what your suffering's like, but I need to feel the pain of your suffering, or at least work to alleviate that suffering. We have to live in a way that we are encouraging one another so that when we intersect, when we do life together, what you go through matters so much to me that I'm willing to do anything to help you. That's what encouragement is. Not just a nice card. But when you're suffering, you know I can at least be there with you in it. That when times are rough, you know you're at least loved. When times don't make sense and you feel overwhelmed, you can at least go somewhere and say, hey, can I sit with you for a while? In Proverbs, there's a verse that says this. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful. And then when it comes to encourage us, says, let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Not giving up our meeting together, some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. My best friend in the world is Mike Vasquez. And he was my roommate my freshman year. And we learned right away that we're too similar to ever live in the same room. You know, so that first that first half of the semester was rough because we just argued about everything. But then once we decided that we can't live in the same room, we became best friends. He was best man in my wedding, I was best man in his wedding. But the thing I love most about Mike is that of all the people in my life, of all the people who've known me not just five years, 10 years, 15 years, but now over 20 years, I have never doubted his love and care and compassion. And I think we don't only need that in our lives. The challenge for us is to be that for the people in our lives. And I, I love Mike because I think he sees things before I see them. You know, I remember when I was applying years ago to be youth pastor, you know, here at this church, and I was just like, Mike, I just don't know. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, you know? And he was just like, but here's the thing. Do you really think God made you preach your first sermon when you were 14 so you could run a after-school program? And I was like, well, I mean, you know, maybe. And he's just like, You've never been scared of anything. You're not even scared of this position. Why are you not willing to listen to God? And so when I think about Mike and I think about our friendship, I'm reminded this morning that what he's been to me has not just been a gift to me, but it's allowed me to be that to other people. And when we think about encouragement, that's how we have to live with one another. That's the kind of people we need to be. Now, yeah, it's nice to receive cards and nice emails, but are you willing to pray for people? Are you willing to see who God wants them to be before they even see it? Are you willing to let your life intersect with them so that you can build them up? Because not all of us are going to lead from the front. To persevere, the church needs all of us leading from where we are. And part of that leading is encouraging and deeply investing in one another. Part of the work is building people up. Like when Pastor Linda talked about that 83-year-old who, who taught Sunday school and had all these leaders grow up, a lot of us are closer to her or need to be closer to her that we will ever be people who are up front. So the question becomes, who in my life do I need to be a Mike Vasquez to? Who do I need to pour so much into? Who do I need to pray so much for? Who do I need to build up that God is going to work through as they've worked through me? And speaking of prayer, that's another way we persevere. In fact, I want you all to do something crazy to me this morning, right? This is wild, right? I want you to raise your hand. 
Go ahead, you can do it. I believe in you. Anybody got your hand now? Wow, you did it. Now, I want you to do two things at once. With your hands raised, I want you to think of one person. Anybody. You got it? You got it? Good, now put your hands down. You just showed that you have the ability to pray for somebody. You should clap for yourself. That's amazing. No, I'm serious. You should clap for yourself. You just show that you have the ability to think of not yourself, but someone else. If we are going to persevere, we have to be committed to praying for one another. Seven days entire with people he never met. And they saw his journey. They saw what God was calling him to. And they were so wrapped up in who and what Paul had to do as they went to the beach, they got on their knees and they prayed for him. No matter how overwhelmed life seems, we can always pray. I used to think that prayer was not just asking God for stuff, but, you know, God forming me. But what I realized is it's not just that God forms you through prayer, but God's prayer starts to shine through you through your prayer. And what I mean by that is simply this. When you start praying for people, it's not just, oh, you pray for them and you hope everything's good. It's you pray for them and God tells you how to pray for them. Is that you pray for them and you start to see God moving, not just in them, but also in you. Is that you can pray and your trust grows. You can pray and it's not just, oh, your dependence in God grows, but your belief grows. Because every time you pledge to pray, you make it less about you and more about what God can do. And through the power of that prayer, God gives you peace, not just for the person you're lifting up, but also for yourself. And I think that when we think about what it means to pray for one another, we need to start looking at it as life and death. And I mean that with all my heart. Because if you're overwhelmed, that means some of those people you just thought about might be overwhelmed too. If you think that life is too much, that means some of those people you're just talking about may think life is too much too. That it may not be life and death for you right now, but it could be for them. So when we say we need to pray for one another, that's just not the, the nice Christian thing to say or do, right? That has to be something we are committed to doing. If we want to be the church that perseveres, we have to be the church that prays. And it has to be that we pray for one another. You know, this fall, we've been talking about all the different ways you can get involved in the church. And we want you to get plugged in all these different ways. But the way we all have to stay plugged in is a commitment to pray for one another. Because in prayer, we help die daily to ourselves. We live in a world that says it's about your truth. It's about you doing better than your parents. It's about you doing better and growing bigger, better, faster. Prayer reminds us that it's not about myself, but it's by dying to myself. It's by not just listening to the Spirit, but being obedient to the Holy Spirit and submitting to the Holy Spirit. Prayer reminds us that we belong to Christ, but also to one another. And the last way I think we can persevere is yes, we need to be hospitable at homes to one another. Yes, we need to live in a way that we're encouraging one another, we're seeing it and, and, and living for one another and lifting each other up and spurring each other on the good deeds. Yeah, we need to be prayerful. But the last way I think we can persevere is to hold on to hope. In John 16, 33, when Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, most of us skip that part. And then when the trouble comes, we say, God, why me? Or God, why is it so hard? I remember you, that quote we read in the beginning, right? Well, was it from Dr. Todd Williams? 
Life in this world is not easy. We're never promised it would be, only that we would never be alone. We have one another, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and a Lord and Savior who said he would never leave us or forsake us. That sustained and guided the early church, so too it can us. We have to live in a way that we hold on to hope. We have to hold on to hope, not just because it's something that like, oh, that's what the good Christian things are supposed to do. But we have to hold on to hope because trouble will come in this world. But we have a God who's overcome this world. That trouble will come in this world. We have a Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and now lives inside of us. The trouble will come in this world. We are not alone. We have sisters and brothers all around us who love us, who are spurring us on, who are being hospitable to us, who are pouring God's love on us. We are not alone. We have to hold on to hope. Because our Jesus who overcame this world makes it possible that we can overcome whatever it is that we're suffering from or going through. We have to hold on to Jesus. And I think the best way for us to hold on to hope is to hold on to Jesus in here, but also to hold on to one another out there. Because if we're willing to hold on to one another, if we're willing to see each other as God sees us, if we're willing to hope, then I believe we can persevere. Paul is going to Jerusalem to die. Or at least that's what he thinks he's going for. And I love that he doesn't die in Jerusalem. I think all of us in this room or all of us outside might think that this is what God's calling me to do. I have this one thing that God's calling me to do. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, you're going to need people in your life who are homes for you. A place where you feel loved, a place where you feel accepted, a place where you feel like, yes, it's not just about what I feel, it's about God's best for me. Whatever God has called you to, you're going to be encouraged. But the work for all of us is to not just need a home, but to be a home. To not just need encouragement, but to be encouragement. To not just need prayer, but to be prayerful. And for all of us, let us hold on to hope. In a world that's not as it should be, we need to hope. In a world that's broken, we need to hope. In a world where people are suffering, we need to hope. Because that hope you hold on to just might be enough to help me through. Amen? I'd like to invite up the worship team. We're going to end singing a song that's pretty familiar to us about Jesus, our God, making a way. But as we sing this song, I want to also invite any of the pastors who are out here. It might be, I think I don't see Pastor Linda. Because um, we have Sunday school classes now. But Pastor Linda and I will be up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. But as we sing this song about God making your way, I really want to encourage you as you think about what it means to persevere. Maybe you'll pick any one of this four, right? Who do I need to be hospitable with? Or who do I need to be a home for? Who do I need to encourage? Who's that one person that popped in my head that I will pray for this week? And who do I need to have hope for? Because that little bit of hope I have might just help them make it through. Let's stand and sing together.
first um, thought about this passage about how this was going to be about the church persevering, I thought this was going to be an early church sermon or our Christians around the world who are, are struggling and, and fighting just to breathe and, and fighting because their, their, their faith is a challenge to their life. And I think we need to remember those Christians and pray for them too. But as I read through Paul's journeys, I realized that all of us, yes, we're on a journey too. And that for some of us, the perseverance that we need is how do we survive this world that we're in that's very different than the people who have been life and death. But we also have to realize that it's life and death for some of us too. That a lot of people in our lives feel lonely. A lot of people feel sad more than just like the normal sadness. A lot of people are battling so many things. But if we're going to be the church that lives on, if we're going to be the church that perseveres, all of us are called to be homes. My African brother, St. Augustine, who I always remind us, right, says that we are to be a home and a hospital. And so my pledge and my plea and my prayer for all of us this week is to spend time thinking, who can I be home to? Who can I be a hospital for? Who can I be an encourager of? Who can I bless through prayer? And who can I bless just by holding hand and saying, I am there with you? That was the secret to the early church perseverance. It wasn't just a persecution and dying. It was willing to live and to live for one another. Our Father God, we thank you so much for the blessing of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he made a way not only for us to come back home again, not only for us to know the hope of heaven, not only for us to know abundant life today, but he made a way that we can be connected to you as we're connected to one another. So Father God, help us to be the body of Christ. To not just know that we're one together, but to live as if we're one together. To hurt when others hurt. To pray as they go through suffering. To be hope when they feel alone. To be loved when they need the love of God and the touch of God. So God, help us this week to think of people, to think of ways, to think of possibilities, to think of dreams. That we can be a home to one another. That we can be hospitals to one another. That we can be encouragers of. That we can be prayer warriors for that we can be together as one. For Father, in being homes, in praying, in encouraging, in hoping, we can persevere through everything. So thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the spirit within. And thank you for the body of Christ all around us that helps us persevere. In your holy and precious name, amen? God bless you all. Have a great week.